If someone asked you to sum up Christianity in just a few words, what would you say? What is the main thing? Out of all the things you could say, what is the heart of Christianity? Maybe you have a clear answer to that. You're just waiting to be asked so you can tell people. On the other hand, maybe you would struggle to find the words if you were asked that question. Well, if you wanted to find just one passage of Scripture that gave us the heart of Christianity, we couldn't do any better than our passage this morning. Those of us who think we understand the main thing, we can check our answer with this passage. And those of us who would love to know the main thing, we can find it set out for us here in this passage. We're in the letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians, and this morning we come to chapter 15. It's a long chapter, we'll look at it over several weeks, but this morning we're just going to read the first 11 verses of the chapter. If you're finding it in a church Bible, it's page 1156, or in the larger print Bibles, 1787. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. This is God's word. One of the striking things about this letter is that it begins and ends by focusing on the work of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's true, the letter opens with a little bit of personal introduction from Paul, and it concludes with some housekeeping details. But the main body of this letter, the meat of it, begins and ends by focusing on Jesus Christ. In between, there's discussion of just about every topic that arises in the life of the church. 
divisions, discipline, sexual behavior, marriage, divorce, singleness, how to interact with the culture we live in, the place of our personal rights. And in recent weeks, we've looked at the long section on church worship. We've heard in that section about spiritual gifts, about the unity of the body, about the way of love, about the need for what we do to be understandable and ordered in the church. This letter is like a manual for church life. And the main body of it begins and ends with a focus on the work of Jesus Christ. That is not accidental. It's to help us grasp the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing. It's the only way we'll be able to sort out any of the other stuff. So what is the main thing? Paul tells us in this passage, it is good news by which we are saved. It is good news of what God has done in Christ. It's good news that brings God's grace into our personal experience. So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, it's good news by which we are saved. Look at those opening verses again. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. Gospel just means good news. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. In recent weeks, we have seen over and over again how much scope there is for variety among God's people. Every local church is going to have a unique combination of gifts from the Spirit. And those gifts are going to be given in different degrees. And when it comes to the times we gather for worship, yes, there are certain principles that must govern our times together, but there will still be quite a bit of variety. Go to a church in China. Go to a church in Africa or Iran. And things are not going to look or sign the same as they do in a typical British church. Then again, is there even a typical British church? There's lots of variety here too. You don't have to go abroad. And if we were able to travel back in time... If we could go, say, to the 17th century, if we could go to the 1st century, of course, there are going to be variations in the way things are done. And even in the 1st century, I doubt that things in the Ephesian church or the Colossian church looked and sounded exactly the same as they did in Corinth. And all of that variety is not a bad thing. Apparently, there will be variety in heaven, loads of it. When the New Testament gives us visions of heaven, like the one we read earlier, it pictures for us a great multitude round God's throne. But in the picture, there's still a very obvious variety. The worshipers don't just blend into one uniform lump. They can still be recognized as coming from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. That would not be the case 
if they all looked and sounded and acted the same. So variety has always been a part of the church and it always will be. It is something to celebrate. Not something to try and stamp out. However, amidst all of the variety, there is a main thing which never, ever changes in the church. Whether it's Corinth, Colossae, Shanghai, Karachi, whether it's the 17th century or the 21st century, the church always takes its stand on a particular piece of good news. It's going to be spelled out for us in the verses to come. It is the good news of what God has done in Christ. Whatever variety there is in terms of how things are done, there will always be this same main thing. If the main thing is not there, then what we're dealing with may look and sound a lot like a church, but it's not really the church. Because the church always takes its stand on this good news. And here's why. We take our stand on this because this good news is actually all that we have to offer the world. Verse 2 says, by this gospel you are saved. People can get rocking music in any number of venues. They don't have to come to the church. They can get a sense of community at any number of clubs. There are lots of places you can get helpful advice on parenting or how to handle your money, how to succeed at work, how to get along with people. The only thing people cannot get anywhere else is salvation. That is why the church takes its stand on the gospel. It's all we have to stand on. It's the only thing by which men, women, and children can be saved. And that raises a very obvious question, saved from what? Well, on one level, this good news saves us from an insubstantial, insecure life. Without this good news, we really have no idea what our lives are truly for. Do we really want to say that we exist to make money? Or to keep the human race going? Or to experience lots of events and travel to lots of places? Is that really what life is about? A life lived for money or experiences is in the end an insubstantial life. A life lived for family is an insecure life. Family can turn against us. Family can be taken away from us. This good news is the only solid ground to build a life on. It saves us in that sense. But even more than that, it saves us from eternal death. That is going to be the main theme of this chapter. It's one of the main themes of the New Testament. And if we imagine, if we have this idea that eternal death just means eternal sleep, then it's not going to seem like a big deal. 
Who needs to be saved from never-ending sleep? But according to the Bible, eternal sleep is not what is ahead for us. Not for any of us. Jesus said that more clearly than anyone else in the Bible. He said, every single one of us is immortal. When this life is over, we will continue living. Either in eternal punishment in hell or eternal life in heaven. No one is going to be sleeping for eternity. When you and I grasp that, then there is a monumental sense of relief to read that we are saved by this gospel. This is the way, not just to be delivered from a disappointing life, this is our escape from eternal hell. And notice what we are to do with this message. Salvation comes to us through it, and we, for our part, have to receive it. Verse 1 says that's what the Corinthians did. Some of you maybe have been hearing this message for years. You may well be able to explain it better than I can explain it. But until you receive it for yourself, knowing about it is not going to make a blind bit of difference you will still end up in hell. We have to take our own stand on this good news. Stake our life on it and build our life on it. And we have to hold firmly to it. That's in verse 2. Jesus spoke in one of his parables about people who received this good news with joy. But when their life got hard... Or when their life got easy and comfortable, they bailed out. They fell away from the good news. This good news brings salvation to those who receive it personally and hold firmly to it. No matter what storms come into our lives, no matter what success comes into our lives, Salvation comes to those who don't let anything lead them astray from this message that brings salvation. That's the importance of the message. That is why it's always the main thing for the church. And now we get to the details. We're talking about the good news of what God has done in Christ. So the good news we're talking about is not just Jesus loves me, although that's true. It's not just Jesus is near me and he hears me, although those things are true as well. When the Bible speaks about the gospel, it's talking about what God did in history through Jesus Christ. There are two parts to it. The first comes in verse 3. What I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This good news we're talking about is news of an historical event. Jesus died. 
Verse 4 mentions a detail that reinforces the fact of Jesus' death. He was buried. It would be highly irregular to bury someone who wasn't dead. And Jesus' executioners were professionals. They made sure he was dead. That's why they released him to be buried. Jesus' death really happened, and Paul tells us it had a purpose. Maybe we think of it as a terrible injustice, and it was that. The New Testament describes Jesus' killers as wicked men. Jesus' death was terrible, but it was not a terrible accident. Not as far as God was concerned. One of the most remarkable things that Jesus said was that he came to give his life. That was the reason he came from heaven to earth. Not to teach, not to heal, not to set an example. He certainly did all of those things. But the reason he came was to give his life. Why? Verse 3 says it was for our sins. To pay for them. One of the best definitions of sin is one that we have used at Discoverers and Holiday Club here in the church. Sin is when we say, shove off God, I'm in charge, not you. That's a great definition of sin because it shows sin is not just bad words or bad actions. At its heart, sin is an attitude. It's an attitude that says, God isn't God, I am. I rule my life. I do what I want. And if God calls me to do something different, then forget God. That is sin. And we're all guilty of it. Even if we're the sweetest, most docile person around. Even if we've never said a bad word or done a bad deed. We're all guilty of sin because the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And we've all broken that commandment. We've done it by preferring our way to God's way. That is making ourselves God. It's saying, shove off God, I'm in charge, not you. And our rebellion is not just a little misdemeanor. It is unforgivable. To live in defiance of our Creator. That's why we need to be saved. We need to be saved because our sins damn us to hell. But Jesus came to this world and died for our sins. On those hours when he hung on the cross, Jesus took an eternity of hell in our place. The Bible describes it like drinking a bitter cup down to the very last bitterest dregs in the bottom. The wrath that we deserve was all contained in that cup. And Jesus swallowed it down so we wouldn't have to. Every other religion says, do this and God will accept you. 
Whatever it is, do these particular good deeds, do this penance, achieve this level of enlightenment, do this, people, and God will accept you. Only Christianity says, this is what God has done so you can be accepted. Receive this good news, take your stand on it, and you will be saved. Forgiven of your sin and blessed with eternal life. Christianity is not about our story. It's about God's story and how we can have a place in it. Because of Jesus. Christ died for our sins and verse 3 says this was according to the scriptures. Meaning the Old Testament. You'll notice Paul doesn't quote any verses though to prove his point. He could have. For example, Isaiah chapter 53 says this about the servant of the Lord. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. And there are other verses Paul could have quoted from the Old Testament. But he doesn't. Why? Simply because he's not referring to a verse here or there. When he says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he means the whole scriptures. From Genesis onwards, the Bible drums home the reality that we need to be saved. We're in a desperate situation and we need to be delivered. Read about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Endless bloody sacrifices. Lambs and bulls offered up on the altar. Day after day, year after year. What was the message of all that? Death and blood. What was it teaching? It was teaching that sin leads to death. Sinners need a substitute to die in their place. Then move on from the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Read about the history of Israel in the Old Testament. It's a history of endless failure. Symptomatic sin, generation after generation. Human beings with a sinful nature. The prophets itemize our sin in the Old Testament. They call it out and they make it clear. Sinful people are headed for judgment. The whole of the Old Testament pushes us to the truth that unless God himself intervenes, unless he works to save us from his own wrath, unless he provides a sacrifice that's greater than those lambs and bulls, then we are lost, eternally lost. And then we read in this passage, in accordance with that Old Testament message, Christ died for our sins. So we must never think the cross was a last desperate chest move from God. No, it was the answer to the problem God had been telling us about for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was the only answer. God had shown in the scriptures already every other way was a dead end. 
Our good intentions could not overcome the problem. The best leaders couldn't lead us out of the problem. Moses, David, great leaders in the Old Testament, but they couldn't free us from our sins. For that, we needed God to become a man and die in our place. And the good news is, he did. And then, he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Without the resurrection, there would be no good news. The resurrection proved Jesus was who he claimed to be. It proved he was who we needed him to be. We needed a Savior who would break the power of sin and death. Jesus' resurrection proved he was the one. He smashed through death and he came out the other side. And this too, Paul says, was according to the Scriptures. Again, Paul is pointing us not to one or two verses in the Old Testament. He's pointing to the Old Testament hope that God would rescue his people. The Old Testament reached its darkest point when God's people were carted off into exile. They were shut out, not just from the land of Israel, but from God's presence. It was like a death. And yet the Old Testament prophets promised restoration. They said there was hope. It wasn't all over. God had a future for his people. And the New Testament tells us the risen Jesus is the guarantee of that future. God restored Jesus and he will restore the rest of his people too. As the chapter goes on, Paul will go into this in detail. We'll go over it in the next few weeks. What God has already done for Jesus, that is what he will do for all those who trust in Jesus. The Old Testament hope that God would give his people new life. This passage tells us Jesus was raised in accordance with that hope. And then immediately these verses remind us this is a historical event we're talking about. We cannot read the New Testament and wonder to ourselves, what did these writers believe about the resurrection? Do they think it actually happened? They leave us in no doubt. Yes. They believe Jesus rose physically from the dead. And here Paul stacks up a list of eyewitnesses to confirm the fact. Verse 5. He appeared, that's Jesus, he appeared to Cephas. We know him better as Peter. And then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Eyewitnesses, loads of them. Don Carson says this. The manner by which we have access to the historical events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is exactly the same as that by which we have access to almost any historical event through the witness of those who were there by means of the records they left behind. That is why Paul enumerates the witnesses mentions that many of them are still alive at his time of writing, 
and therefore could still be checked out and recognizes the importance of their reliability. Christianity stands or falls on the historical details. That's why the New Testament writers work so hard to present eyewitness testimony to those details. That's why Jesus himself gave those witnesses the proof they needed so they could give us the proof we need as they pass on their witness through the New Testament. You remember when Thomas said he wouldn't believe unless he could see and touch the risen Jesus? Jesus did not say, oh, just believe, Thomas. No, he came to Thomas and he said, look at my nail-scarred hands. Put your hand into my side, Thomas. Feel where it was torn open by the spear. Why? Why did Jesus go to those lengths? So others could read what Thomas saw and felt and believe. So it won't do to sidestep the historical issue. It won't do to say, Jesus has risen in my heart. The good news is better news than that. It tells us Jesus has actually risen physically. And so we too will actually rise physically. The church of Jesus Christ will sound and look a bit different in Nairobi than it does in Pelsall. No doubt it looked and sounded a bit different in the 5th century than it did in the 16th century. But the church of Jesus Christ always takes its stand on the good news that Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day and all of this was according to the scriptures. This is the good news by which we are saved. And it's good news that brings God's grace into our personal experience. These last verses of the passage are very personal. Paul speaks about the impact this had on him in his own life, in his own situation. And Paul's words are remarkable because of their utter lack of self-confidence. And at the same time, their profound confidence in God. Paul's lack of self-confidence comes first, verse 8. And last of all, he appeared, that's Jesus, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Before he met the risen Jesus, Paul was a deeply religious man. But that religion didn't lead him closer to God. His religious pride led him to try to stamp out the church. Paul was taking his stand on his own righteousness. But he looks back on that now and he sees the folly of it. He's ashamed of it. That his religion actually caused him to reject the good news that could save him. Many religious people today are like that. Not that they're persecuting the church, but that they take offense 
at being told they're lost sinners who can't save themselves. Surely we're not that bad. Surely God has noticed our efforts to do a good turn now and again. Surely he's noticed we're not as bad as those ones up the street from us. The Bible tells us that kind of self-righteousness will cause us to miss out on salvation. We have to get over our pride. We have to put our hope in the one who died for our sins and we needed him to die for us. Martin Luther says this about our pride. It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. Despair is not always a bad thing. It's good when it leads us to God's grace. And after telling us about his own sin, Paul goes on in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, a Christian. By the grace of God. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The good news doesn't leave us in despair. It gives us a profound confidence in God. We look at the cross and we have all the assurance we need that God loves us. That our sins are dealt with. The same Martin Luther who said despair leads us to grace. He said this about the confidence God's grace gives us. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death in hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death in hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. God's grace gives us confidence in the face of our own failures and in the face of Satan's accusations against us. And God's grace actually makes us effective servants. It shows us our lives have a purpose. We're headed for resurrection. We're more than just dust. We have an eternal part in God's plans. And even now, God is graciously working through us. That's part of the good news too. That God saves us for effective, eternally useful service to him. So this good news, it's not just a statement we sign our name to. This good news brings God's grace into our own personal experience. It changes who we are. From people who serve ourselves, chasing stuff that won't last, 
into servants of God playing our part in his eternal purposes. That is why this good news must always be the main thing in the church. Whatever differences we have about how to do things, this is what we all take our stand on. This is what we must hold firmly. So let's close by doing what worship is meant to do, helping us remind one another in God's presence of the truths we take our stand on.